Handbrake Off is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined in the studio by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. We're smiling more and more each week. Uh, and also, coming down the line, the Arsenal legend. I always introduce him as that because he is Mr Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. Morning. I'm smiling too. You'll be pleased to know. Good, good. Well, so we should be after... I suppose what we could call a comeback win, but we'll get to that. I mean, it, well, I mean, the, the point I'm making is uh, that we are going to talk about our favourite Arsenal comebacks uh, because of that win. I felt that was less a comeback win, more we, we sort of gave ourselves a handicap of a goal <laughs> and then see how we go. But I thought comeback wins would be a nice one to talk about uh, after the depressing one last week of worst European away trip. Uh, so, uh, uh, Amy, let's start with you. Your favourite comeback win. I think you shouldn't start with me because I'll go through too many and then no one else will have one. All right then, James, we're starting with you this week. 2014 FA Cup final is mine. I think it's hard to look past it. 2-0 down, win it 3-2 in extra time. Uh, Yeah, that's my choice. It was a great day there. I also got an excellent parking space at Preston Road Station as well. The cherry on the cake. Beautiful. Uh, Amy, no, I'll tell you what, we'll go to Lee next. Obviously, I can't just pick a game. I've got to pick half a season. So I've gone for the comeback in 98, when we were a million points behind United. Um, and we obviously... that The end to that season was probably the best. And that's why the end 98 team is always very special to me. And I always say it's the best team I ever played in. And it would beat the Invincibles more times than it beat us. Um, very proud of that team. And that's that from sort of February onwards, we, we were absolutely unbelievable. Awesome. Awesome, um, what they were. you know, and those ten wins on the trot to win the league. I think that combined just not only for the glory of of that season, but also based on the fact that it was, you know, United when they were twelve points ahead of us was so smug um, <laughs> that we kind of, you know, that little bit of catching them up when we beat them at Old Trafford was kind of like we knew as soon as we beat them at Old Trafford that was it. You could tell as they went off the pitch. The difference in the the energy levels of both sets of yeah. players and fans was that was like we got in the dressing room after that game and said that's it we've done it we don't count the last two games of that season because we were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> just just going back to that Man United game, Lee, you come yeah. off the pitch and it was like it's done. Although it was quite, it was February I think or March, I mean yeah. there's still quite a long way to go. Did you see that in their faces as well? If you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you look at the opposition and think, well, they know it as well as we know it. They're, they're, yeah. They know they're done for. 
I think there was a lot of talk before that game and then we kind of went on this little run and I think they started going, well, there's still 12 points behind. I think we had a couple of games in hand. But, and it was 14th of March, Amy, because it was just before my birthday. Yeah. And uh, I remember the game and in the dressing room, obviously we didn't go, oh yeah, it's done, we've won the league. But there was a sense of, nobody said it in the dressing room, but we kind of looked at each other and went, that was the one. That was that now we'll go on a run and we we couldn't see us losing on the game, and then to win ten on the spin, um, was just you know the last eighteen games apart from the last two, which I'm chalked off. You know we won fifteen and drawn three of them, and it was just incredible. We had eight clean sheets on the trot. It was just an amazing time, and uh, so that that's my comeback of the uh, my in my you know my memory comeback half a season. Um... <laughs> Amy, what have you got? Are you ready now? Well, yeah, I mean, i just giving everyone a chance for a name about 20. But no, I mean, just cup final-wise, obviously, James's in recent time was, was amazing. But going back, even 71 cup final, being behind and coming back to win 79, although it wasn't behind, getting clawed back and coming back to win. Um, but the 87 Littlewoods Cup... Uh, semi-finals <gasps> onwards, I'd say both the both well the three semi-finals as were the first one was a one-nil defeat at home to Tottenham, and then there was a, a two-one at White Hart Lane where they'd scored again first, so you effectively come back from two down in their place, and then an, an extra replay. I believe they tossed the coin because um, they didn't know where to play it, and it, it, and it was White Hart Lane again. They scored again to go uh, ahead, and then uh, David Rocastle, God bless him, and Ian Allenson um, was very late late goals kind of I think the people that were there there was a certain level of mayhem in that away end that has probably been unmatched and then it was 1-0 down 2-1 up again in the final against Liverpool and of course Liverpool never lost when Ian Rush scored and he scored and um, uh, Charlie Nicholas uh, with a kind of weird dribbly (laughs) goal at the end that somehow made it over the line that was a special one it was my first day at, at Wembley ever and I remember when I finally got around to eating fever pitch thinking how come this bloke's been in my head because the feeling of walking through and it, it, it you know a, a stadium sort of you're going through the, up the stairs and then suddenly you go through this sort of rectangle into where the the pitch is and you see the green of the pitch and the red and white of the mm. crowd and the noises and that kind of overload of sensory kind of stuff hitting you going oh my god and then there's that scene in fever pitch where it's hybrid and it was like that and mm. it was a really amazing thing to go and I only went because my stepdad, very kindly, he was supposed to be going with three mates, you know, uh, four middle-aged blokes, and he gave me his ticket. And his friends had to take a 15-year-old girl. And I'm not quite sure wow. how that worked out. But anyway, it was brilliant for me. And that wasn't even <laughs> the one I was going to go for. I was it. also just quickly going to mention the the um, Invincible se- season, the Liverpool oh. 4-2 Oh, that's a that game, was a which two, was down. Yeah. A phenomenal. Uh, one of the great moments at Highbury, I think, that I- game. Especially after having lost to Man United and Chelsea in the week in various cup competitions, mm. um, I want to briefly mention Spurs five two. We were two 0 down in that game. Yeah. That which was, one? Boom boom. Oh yeah, exactly. What's the yeah. time? Five two. Um, yeah, that one. And I also want to mention two 0 down to Shakhtar Donetsk and Martin Keown getting two goals, including <laughs> the last minute. Quite a lot. I think you because, loved this. No, because it was a, a joy for me, and also because I felt like I played some part. That's the point. Because because I went home and Rosie said to me, how was the game? And I said, we won 3-2. And honestly, we it was us. We did it, the crowd. And she looked at me with a pity I've never seen in my life. And then Martin Keown was interviewed later on on TV. And he, said, he went, it was the crowd that did it. And I turned around and went, see... 
pathetic moment on all parts, but it was a good time. And I now I do mention that a lot. It was a good comeback. Now, let's... you actually scared of Martin Keown? Is that what it is? Are you scared if you don't mention his name every week? He's going to come for you. Can I ask who isn't scared of Martin Keown? <laughs> Fair question. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight, yes, eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And, as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers for those slow at maths. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the Athletic listeners get two extra free beers. Um, I want to talk about uh, discipline and conduct this week. Uh, we've listen. We do feel like the, the the team have really got it together. They're playing for each other. They're working for each other. If one loses the ball, another one tracks back. There's a lot going on that I think Mikel Arteta has instilled in that team. When he first came along, he was talking about, what was the word he used? The, the things that they... Rabble. The, well, <laughs> there, there was that word. But it was the, the things that they... These things are... are um, there's a line. Non-negotiables. Non-negotiables, it, exactly. Right. And I think part of it is that discipline and conduct. Um, now, he is a bit of a stickler for it. Lee, do you see that in him? Do you see a bit of George in him? I'm talking about George yeah. Graham here, by the way. Yeah, I think um, obviously I'm not in the dressing room, not at the training ground, but you get a sense that one of the things that has been lacking over the recent years and towards the end of Arsene as well, he has to take uh, some of the blame, if that's the right word for that, that uh, the accountability for everything that you do with a with a cannon on your chest is is absolutely what, what should be done because you learn all these regulations and and respect the badge and all of that and who you are and what you represent and all of that and that is exactly how it is and I think he he got that when he was a player there from what I'm told um and he's certainly part of Pep's um qualities I think is that discipline and that attention to detail and the the ability to keep focused on your job and what you're supposed to be doing and that's all part of it and and that goes into discipline of yourself about being on time and hitting your deadlines, hitting your if you've got if you've got all that going on in the background, then it, it gives you discipline during the game. And when you're focusing on your job, you you take it as seriously. And and the little things, marginal gains, and all of that sort of stuff. I'm a big advocate of that. And you see that with him that you you know that seems to be coming out of the onto the pitch. You do see that. That's one of the 
the good things about him being there is that we seem to be seeing that as fans. The fact that we're talking about it on the podcast would um, would cement that, I think. I think there's definitely been a change. Lee, I mean, obviously you work with George Graham, who was a famous disciplinarian. Can I just ask you about how how the two managers you played under at Arsenal, George and then Arsene, I know we had others in between, sort of differed in the way they enforced that discipline. Was Arsene as you know strict in his own way? Was he more lax with things like that? What was your experience of working under him? Well, I think we know about Arsene being very um, an intelligent guy who thinks about uh, all sorts of things a lot. So he's he was clever enough when he came into the, the club to realise that all of that was kind of, it was inbred in, in us. It was really deep-rooted in the players that he had. And what the clever thing, what he did was he didn't interfere with that too much. He didn't come in and say, you know, we're changing. He changed a lot of things, like the, the medical side of things, the nutrition side of things, etc. But he already saw the discipline that was was with us. So he, he allowed us to police the dressing room, the training area, the the dressing room on a match day he saw that all that was in place so he didn't disrupt that he's very clever and and everybody who came in he kind of almost brought them into the dressing room and kind of pushed them towards all us lot sitting in the corner and went they'll they'll get it and if they don't get it that lot over there will tell them pretty sure you know it won't be long before they get the message and those messages were all about that sort of stuff and you kind of you you going into a dressing room like that you you toe the line. It's very difficult to go in. You've got to be one heck of a character to go in and start not not towing the party line. And and because also it's very successful, Stony. You know, you look at it and go, actually it works. So they must be doing something right. Let's let's buy into this. And a few, to be fair, a few of the French lads came in. You know, Thierry is famously one of them who came in and was very sort of. Um, sulky at times and come in and go no I don't need to do that I don't need to train this way I don't need to do this because I'm my own person you can be your own person in that environment but he soon learned that there was only one way for him to go and that was to actually jump off the little boat he was on and jump on the big ship we were on because otherwise he he was going under I think it's quite interesting when you think about all this stuff how it changed. So when Lee and all his cohorts and the, the sort of um, uh, the baton being passed from you know the older older teams and the older generations through to the new players when that kind of ended with i suppose the breakup of the the successful teams and the invincible players and those guys who've been brought up or had learnt to behave that way things started to get a bit more lax so you look at the kind of i don't know the nazri adebayor yep. sort of generation galas you know, et cetera, et etc etc i think the dressing room couldn't police itself then and that was the point where arsen didn't really have it in his armory to instill it. it i think he needs players to do it for themselves in a dressing room well lee i mean on that point is that is it a fair point to say that basically when all the players that had played under george had gone that was the point when things started to shift well, no, I, they they don't. They'd already um, we'd already started the process of passing all of that on with Thierry to Patrick Vieira, who, who gets it, with Robert Perez, who got it in the end. All of those players were then, you know, I think where it started to fall down is exactly where um, where Amy says when you've got those those players who there's kind of it started to lose its potency because there was only one or two lying around who could pass that on. And then once it started to, so I mean, Fabregas was captain, for instance, you know, it kind of, 
no disrespect to him, brilliant player, lovely guy, really get on well with him. Um, but he he was he was he wasn't a captain that was carrying all of that stuff and passing it on around the dressing room. So it then became diluted. And once it gets beyond a certain level of of um, numbers that can pass on all that stuff and be the power in the dressing room, it's gone and it never comes back unless you've got somebody who goes, no, I'm now the manager and I'm going to say, this is what we do. And it, the characters then in the dressing room have to go, you'll, you'll see a change in people. You, we've seen it already. You've seen people seemingly grabbing a bit of a baton and going, yeah, and there's a bit more togetherness and a bit more, and and, and we've talked about team spirit before, and hopefully a bit more um, accountability where people are getting told off and told that's not good enough, and we haven't seen that for years. I think that's why um, it's so impressive what Arteta's doing at the moment, because it's the same group of players broadly as you know, six months ago on Doon Imery, who looked like the dressing room was completely shambolic, that everybody could only try their best to look after their own interests. People weren't, it wasn't really the atmosphere to put the team first. And the contrast with what you're seeing now, where it's absolutely demanded that you put the team first and that everybody has healthy competition, as Eddie and Katia um, mentioned last night after the game, and, you know, is, is desperate to work together as a group, that if you play, if you don't play, the mentality is completely transformed. And I'm, I think, I don't know, quite how Arteta has done it but I mean it, it, it well, Amy, me a remarkable it, success you've hit the nail on the head it, it comes from the top it comes from the guy at the top when Wenger came in it came from him because he allowed the strong people in the dressing room to, to do it for him so then as it starts to get diluted the next manager coming in if he hasn't got that like Arteta's got which Unai Emery didn't have who's, you know, voting, letting the players vote for captain and all of that sort of stuff. The players then become powerful in a different way and then you're shot to pieces. It has to be, the, the change has to come from the top now. It had to, the dressing room wasn't strong enough. Now it comes from him. And if he gets a dressing room like we used to have, then you can, like the next manager after him can allow that to be okay for a while until it starts to dilute again. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the chain was broken, wasn't it? I think it almost goes back to leaving Highbury because that sort of enforced a contract policy where players over 30 weren't retained. And I always think of when Gilberto was let go as like a really crucial moment in this because he was sort of one of the last bastions of the Invincibles who still had a role in the squad. He was sold off because he was of a certain age. We weren't going to give him a new deal. And then it opened the door to this new era, which was somewhat chaotic in the dressing room. And I don't think you can really blame some of those young players because the culture wasn't there. The culture wasn't in place. Absolutely. James mentioned young players there. Um, do you think the attitudes amongst the younger players have changed from when you were, I mean, when you were, when you came in and the money you're earning, you were earning as opposed to the money they're making now, does that change their attitude to the discipline side of the game? Absolutely. And, that, and that's why that it, he, um, Arteta now with, a, with having a bunch of young, talented young players coming through, he's got to get it right above them. If he doesn't, then those kids don't have any leaders, don't have any um, parental figures around them that can police them when Arteta's not there. Because he's not there all the time. You spend a lot of time together as players and the manager sees some of it. He gets an essence of what it's all about. But then it, you, the senior players in that dressing room are absolutely so important right now to be able to guide those kids and, and give them a little push back down. And he's already done that from a... 
you know, a, um, you know, Gendouzi leaving him out of the squad type thing, which is, I think was a stroke of genius. I say stroke of genius, a really good management. You know, we don't see that as often now, but it, that's what the um, young players need now and again. And you kind of need a few of the old heads in there who've been around the block a few times, who've got that in them to go, actually, you can, you can see players getting above their station. And it sounds, you know, like almost a dictatorship, but you've got... The, the young boys earning huge amounts of money who think could think that they're possibly better than as a human being than they actually are. And you've got to make sure that you police that in a very caring parental way. But sometimes and that parent, you know, parents tell kids off and it has to be that way. And that's why this dressing room now, his most important thing is to get that right. Forget what's going out on the pitch. He's got to get the dressing room right. And he seems like, you know, I'm not in it, but he seems like we're seeing a few signs. Talking of uh, senior players, we wanted to talk about uh, two of them who seem to be doing particularly well. In a, I like the idea of a parental role. I mean, I was going to mention Mustafi, but if he is in a parental role, he's having some sort of midlife crisis with that haircut. But, but Mustafi and Louise together, they seem to have, I'm not saying they're captains of the team, but they seem to be leading the team a little bit more. Would that be a fair assumption? I think Louise certainly is a really strong leadership figure. I mean, he is, you know, one of these guys who, whenever you see the team collected in the huddle before the game, it's him who's doing the talking. Even if it is purely symbolic, I think that he is someone who the other players clearly like, respect, admire. Yeah. As for yeah. as for Mustafi... Uh, I think I'm not sure I would say quite the same for him, but I am pretty taken aback at the fact that he has come into this team and is putting together a string of performances now. I mean, Amy, he looks so much more confident, doesn't he, than he did just a few weeks ago. OK, so I'm just <laughs> going to tell you the story now about about the scene in the mix zone yesterday uh, after the match. Um Mustafa, just to just to explain what mix zones are for those of you who might not know, um, it's this funny little area uh, where they put up a, a barrier, and on the one side is the media, and on the other side the players are supposed to walk past. And we are in a position where we can ask them if they wish to speak to us. Um, in general, they prefer not to. I have no idea why that is, but anyway, it, it's usually a pretty thankless task standing in the mix zone. But Arsenal have, have slightly changed it. They had a secret door that the players used to be able to to go out recently, directly from the dressing room, so they didn't have they could avoid us. However, apparently now there's someone manning that door, uh, telling them that actually no, you have to go through the mix zone. <laughs> Anyways. Can I just jump in, Amy, because I was there for the first home game that they changed this and the looks on the players' faces when they realised they had to leave going past the journalists was priceless. They were so sad and disappointed about they can it. Put off, they can put on their headphones, though. That's yeah, what they often always do, isn't trick. it? Pull the baseball cap down. But anyway, they had to walk past you yesterday. Anyway, we're, we're hanging around and, you know... You know, la di da, waiting, waiting, and waiting, and waiting some more to see who might come through and um, enlighten us with uh, with some pearls of wisdom. And uh, you know, a few of the players coming through, they were all quite happy. Obviously, people are quite up at the moment, and a few of them are happy to talk. And then all of a sudden, there was this vision. Shkodran Mustafi came through, and when I'd say swagger, 
that's not even the right word. He was swinging, walking. It was like a catwalk. It was like, do you know what? It was like, he, he had his kind of white blonde hair. He had, you know, bear in mind it's eight o'clock at night. It hasn't been a great day in terms of weather. He's got these kind of golden tan shades on. They were really nice. Yeah. He's got a cut to his suit, a bit different to everyone else. He looks apart. He feels like David Beckham in the, you know, the sarong. He's got a kind of bit of Cristiano Ronaldo spirit animal going on all of a sudden. He's changed... <laughs> His whole vibe. You know, it's like, you know, the scene in Greece when Olivia Newton-John suddenly is, goes from being the sort of um, not very cool, sort of prissy sort of uh, girl next door type. She's got leather trousers and she's got the stilettos and, and the makeup and the, the rock and roll is going on. Mustafi is in with the in crowd, man. He has changed. He's a god. He's walking through like I'm feeling it. And I guess the moral of this story is, you know, like some Chinese you know, proverb, you know, you, you look the part, you feel the part, you are the part. He's a new man. He, he seriously needs to have a word with himself and pipe down a little bit. <laughs> Listen, he's playing well. Here's a guy who didn't, he didn't look good, he didn't feel good. He used to walk through and nobody wanted to talk to him. It was like, you know, he's the man now and it's like he's playing well. Yeah, well, bang, bang me 25 appearances out and like, you know, 15 clean sheets and he can do what he wants with his hair and his sunglasses. But I just, just sit back in the, just sit back down for a bit and just carry on cheering the results out, getting too carried away. with his... I could go on for hours about that, but I won't. I'll no, let it go. I, I think I, I sort of am slightly more with you, Lee. Like, I think he's been really good and I'm really pleased for him. And listen, it, you know, he can do whatever he likes with his hair and his sunglasses, as far as I'm concerned. But... I I still have this sense that he's a bit of a time bomb. I can't escape it. I just feel like this is this is what happens with Mustafi. He plays well and then he inexplicably makes a massive error out of nowhere and we're back where we started. But he's got to enjoy it, I guess, while, while he can. But I just can't help but feel it's not going to be a permanent thing. Do you think that the crowd has a certain... Um, responsibility in that regard, that every time he gets the ball, we don't go, oh, no. A bit like when Petr Cech used to kick and you'd think, or he used to run more than 10 yards, you yeah. think he's going to get a hamstring injury. Uh, in the same way that Mustafi, we need to calm down a little bit. Alex Iwobi talked about it at the start of last season when he was saying that there wasn't the fear in the crowd. That must affect the players, Lee, surely. Yeah, of course, but Stoney, you're... Hang on, I need to get my head right before I say this. Hang on. He he's a professional footballer. He's played in World Cups. He, he he's you absolutely do what you want with your hair, do what you want with your sunglasses, and <laughs> but you can't go around you can't go around protecting players on the pitch. Yeah, obviously every time he gets the ball and he's had a, a rough time, and I'm pleased that he's that he's booked up and he's playing well. Obviously, but you can't go you can't say to the crowd well, when he gets it don't. Don't say anything or don't don't feel nervous. Your crowd feel what they feel. And you're a professional footballer playing at the top of your game for Arsenal. If you can't handle that, if you if it really bothers you and you and you're appealing to the crowd, you know, not not to be, you know, please let me play my game and you'll see how good I am, that's fine. I understand that. But you can't you can't be sheltered from that. That's the part of being a footballer. If you can't handle it. And it gets to you. Go and no disrespect. Go and play lower down the leagues. Go and play for another team where there's there's only five thousand people there, and they're not going to get on your back. This is Arsenal. We're here to win. Do one thing, and that's win trophies. And the standards have dropped so low. And you've got players now who are who are not playing playing well. The team's booking up, 
and we all got to stand around and not say anything in case he has a bad game or whatever. You get get on with your job. If you want to dye your hair, fine. But then as soon as you have a bad game, just watch out for social media or wherever you read your papers or whatever, because someone will be on your back. And my advice to him would be put his hair back how it was, take your sunglasses off, go and hide behind um, your captain and churn out 25 performances. And then at the end of the season, I'll be the first one to go to the hairdressers with you and have my hair dyed with you. <laughs> Hello, uh, producer Tyo here. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix. It's an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. You get to fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, your budget, your size, your shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from their selection of 100 brands, including established names and up and coming designers try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe you can then pay for what you like and send back the rest for your stylist's time you pay a charge of just 10 pounds which is deducted from the cost of anything you buy so remember you try before you buy delivery and returns are free both ways and you don't need a subscription to sign up Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast, please, by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot uk forward slash athletic. Thanks. I want to talk briefly about players being played out of position, uh, specifically about Bukayo Saka. Ostensibly, he's an attacking left winger, really, and he's playing uh, at fullback or wingback, and he looks like he was made for the role. Lee, were you ever played out of position? Yeah, I, I played. I remember playing at Ibury. I don't know what year. All I remember, George going. Uh, he put. I think I was. Was he on the bench? I think I was on. I think he was resting me. I, I was on the bench, and then. Somebody got injured and we were playing Newcastle and he goes, go and play centre-back Mark Shearer. And I went, has he seen four? Is he mad? <laughs> and we played, I think we played three at the back and I, he just put me on him to man-to-man mark him for about 20 minutes. So that was my one and only wander into the middle of the pitch. Didn't like it in there. Too many people. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, but I mean, he has done, ex, you know, he's done exceptionally well. He's, he's brilliant to watch. He's absolutely relishing in that role that he's got that is kind of like a it's not really it's not a role that we we're familiar with because it's not wing back it's not full back because he's he's playing full back with a left back playing alongside him with when he goes forward in Jacker just fills in that hole for him so he's got he's, he's defensive and, and that's all done to protect him from when we don't have the ball and him being out of position and also in is he's in a at the moment, his inability to understand the dangers where they might crop up because yeah. he doesn't really know. So put another body there and Jack is doing a brilliant job there filling in for him. So it's working. You know, Arteta's absolutely nailed it as far as filling in a gap till Tierney gets fit and gets back in the side. But, you know, the way he's playing and the way the team's playing like that, I'm not saying he's he's going to stay in the team as a left-back. I don't think he will. But ultimately... Um, at this moment in time, it's abs- he's absolutely busting it. And uh, the other end, what what a supplier of, of goals. 
Lee, Lee, where do you see him in a year or two? Do you think he'll be playing left wing for Arsenal? Do you think that this kind of this part of his development will be, you know, a part of his history and he'll evolve to be where he wants to be? Yeah, I think so. I think it'll be um, invaluable for him. You might not see. I mean, he's enjoying it now. Don't get me wrong, and he's loving it. I think if he sits down and you and, and you talk to him now and say, "Where do you see yourself?" I, I'm pretty sure he won't say. I see myself as a left back because he's not playing left back. You know, he's it's not a left back role. So if you said, right, go and play left back and you just play him as a normal left back, he, he would, in my opinion, he would struggle a bit because he's he, he's not got defensive thought in his head. So that's, but that's fine. That's, you know, and, and if we, if you play forever with a wing back situation and that false left back position, then, you know, he'll play all season there and, and he'll love it. Um, but I think when he then goes back to playing with a normal, say Tierney gets back in the side and then he's on that left side. I mean, it, he will form a brilliant partnership with somebody because of his knowledge, you know, his build up of knowledge of some of the defensive side of, of a left sided player. He's played a lot of games now, Lee, and Mikel sort of tried to give him a rest yesterday. Couldn't in the end, had yeah. to bring him on. What do you think about a player 18 years of age, you know, playing consecutive games like that? Do you think that they need to come out the side or do you think at that age you just want to play every single minute that you can? Yeah, as a player you want to play every minute um, but he will be monitored, you know, they'll have all the stats on him, they'll be looking at his numbers, his red zones and all the stuff they do now. The sports scientists will be all over him like a bad rash just making sure that and that's why, you know, he was probably given a rest yesterday. Um, And yeah, it's fine to play chunks of games like he is doing but if it starts to roll into season after season at that age then that, I don't think that's good for you for any young boy at that age um, it seems brilliant at the moment but it, there will be a time when he you know you, you need to just give him a little breather for sure we have had a few played out of position over the years I mean I think about Andre Shavin and what an outstanding player he was number and then nine he was played in the wrong position oh right yeah <laughs> no but I'm saying he was played in the wrong position it never really worked out for him we've had a few of those Bentner was played out wide as well yeah well it's interesting Arsene used to use it I think as part of a player's education he really believed that players who were sort of played through the middle if you put them wide for a period of time they had to learn to operate in more confined spaces he did it with Cesc Fabregas he did it with Aaron Ramsey he tried to do it with Bentner I think there were pretty mixed results with it but you know it goes back to Ajax and their academy they were always moving players around uh, and I think you know if it's part of your education then that's probably a good thing if you think about the position of, of wide players and centre forwards especially you know that the difference the huge difference between when Aubameyang plays down the middle and when he plays on the left side because when you're playing on as you said James when you're playing on the left side you've only got you've only got one way to go because the pitch behind you is a load of people watching so you've got to, in order to create space behind you, you've got to go in field to then come out. Whereas a centre forward, you can go either way because you can create space both sides of you as opposed to when you've just got the line behind. I find that when I went into midfield now and again, you know, there's so many people all around you when you're in the middle of the pitch and it's quite a scary place. So it's sometimes nice to, to go in there and realise how, did, you know, when I pass a ball in from my right back position into... Patrick Vieira, and he does something really brilliant. You forget sometimes how good these players are because they've got players 360 degrees all around them as opposed to me. You know, I've basically got a blinker on my right eye because I don't need to look out there because it's just full of fans. So there's a safety on the wings, but it also gives you an, gives you a real appreciative um, 
assessment of, of space when you do change position. Just talking about Ajax, as, uh, as you did there, James, it uh, reminded me of uh, Dennis once talking about when he was coming through as a young boy at Ajax and the whole total football philosophy and how he said there would be times when there'd be a young player who was all right foot, you know, completely useless with his left, and they'd play a game and they'd play him on the left, uh, knowing they'd probably lose the game or there'd be a problem or whatever, but it didn't matter because all they wanted to do by, by sticking this kid out on the left for a certain period of time was get him to work on that specific thing. Um, I remember also going to see, I think around the mid-90s when Ajax won the European Cup, a very young Edwin van der Sar was, um, was out watched a training session and he was barely in goal. He was just doing sort of passing. And we were like, what's going on here? And at the end he said, well, you know, I need to be able to play the ball out with my feet and find my teammates. And now that kind of sweeper-keeper idea that, of course, is is standard, uh, or at least people like to think that it should be, you know, he was doing that, in you know, nearly 30 years ago, just as kind of that was what they did. And they were so far ahead of the game in those ideas of giving an education to a footballer to make them the better player, even if it might be a bit counterintuitive. Lee, we're going to let you go at this point. It's been lovely to talk to you, as always. See you next week. I'm just the, post, the postman's come, so I've got to go. Time. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Amy, you wrote a piece in the last day or so about squad mentality. We we touched on it briefly when it came to discipline and the, and the way they're working, conduct the way they're working for each other. But the piece that you wrote was specifically, I think, about the players who are not in the team on any given day. You were talking about Martinelli, who wasn't even in the squad, sitting there in his regular clothes. And he was so chuffed when they won and you could see it. And you likened it to the Invincible team when Carnu and Will Tord and Edu, these guys who were on the fringes of the team... Um, you feel they've got a similar vibe going on? Well, when I say likened to, that's probably yes. taking it a little bit far, but it reminded me of something that I thought was an amazing and central part of why the Invincibles team and squad worked as it did. You know, There are certain players in that uh, that you associate with that era who were around that time who had to be very patient for chances because if you were a central midfield player, you're not really displacing Patrick Vieira or Gilberto very often. Uh, so for the likes of um, Edu or Ray Parler, who sometimes played in the middle as well as out wide, who again has a Robert Pires or Freddie Jungberg in front of him, they had to wait for opportunities. And, you know, there was such quality in the squad as a whole, but there was still within that a kind of everybody knew who the sort of, if you're fit and you're not in a red zone, who's playing. And everybody, again, within the squad knows who are the ones who have got to got to be patient not play so much and I thought it was a secret to that team that, that those players actually talked about how cleverly as a group and indeed Arsene Wenger was for the way that he talked to the team the way that he talked to individuals to make everybody feel involved to make everyone feel motivated every day you're going to training every day you're taking part but maybe you're not getting picked for a few weeks or maybe you're a sub and you don't come on and when the moment is comes that you're needed you're absolutely peak ready and some, there's something about what's going on, and I think maybe it's just the contrast with the fact, as I mentioned, that the team spirit was kind of so ropey before under Unai Emery, that they have unified and gelled in a really, really nice way. And you can see it in the way that the players behave around one another. And um, 
Socrates was a really good example yesterday as well. He's played much less um, since Arteta's come than he did previously under Emery. And he is still very much the kind of leader, the team man, a proper elder statesman who wants to help. And at half-time of the game yesterday, he, he he was a sub, he didn't come on. He stood by the mouth of the tunnel and he greeted every player as they came off the pitch for half-time, give them like a fist bump or a high five and a word or a pat on the back. It's a small thing, yes. but what it shows is that there's a, there's a kind of togetherness where people are, that as a squad, they're trying to be both competitive with one another because they want to play, but also putting the greater good first. And that's such a plus given where this squad came from. Uh, just another example of that. It's such a tiny thing, but third choice goalkeeper is a real thankless task, yep. right? In any squad, you're not involved at all. But since Arteta came in, Matt Macy has been at every game and involved in every warm up. So when they do the shooting drills, he's not on the bench, but he's in the goal. And I just think that's a really great example of sort of making someone feel involved and part of the group. So if we do get an injury crisis at goalkeeper and suddenly need him, he feels like he's been part of that journey and part of that process. We're not even sure what our first team is. So it, I know that people say, oh, you should always know what your first team is. But in a squad game we've got now, is it as important? What, knowing what the first eleven is? Yes, because... because It is if you're Liverpool. I mean, I think it depends what, what you're ones. doing and where you are. In, in Mikel Arteta's case, arriving halfway through a season in chaos, I don't think it's as important. In fact, it's probably the opposite in that he has to give everyone a go and which is what you know he's been doing that and for whatever his reasons are he's coming to the conclusion that Mustafi plays almost all the time you know and mm. it's dependent on he whatever he's seen at training he came to the conclusion that for the first couple of months Lacazette plays even if he wasn't scoring goals and more recently he's come to the conclusion whatever he's seeing in training and Ketia gets starts even though he's recently come back he's I think he's trying to have a look at everyone like Torreira's not getting that much football at the moment Guendouzi's in and out Sabas is suddenly back over a period of time since he's been here when you look at who's playing and who's not there's a core who pretty much always play so that's Leno that's Louisa Mustafi it's Granit Xhaka Meza Özil yeah. and it's Aubameyang and to an extent yeah. Pepe and Lacazette who are like nearly there they're all the older more experienced senior. senior players and they're pretty much in and they're pretty much mostly playing 90 minutes in starting matches and then the rest around them he's he's checking out who can give what and whether this is just this season's work or with a little nod to next season I don't know but it's giving everyone that chance and making them all feel like they're desperate to come in and show what they can certainly looks like it that they're all happy about that, James. I think so, yeah. I mean, Eddie Nketiah has been a beneficiary, hasn't he, of that sort of renewed competition. I, I do wonder if we might start to see a little bit of a divergence of a kind of Premier League team and a Europa League team. We've seen that over the last week or so, and Nketiah played both the Premier League games, Lacazette in Europe. I just think as, you know, we're now juggling three competitions with yes. the Europa League coming back, we might see a little bit more of a difference between the sides. Well, Amy, in that piece, you were talking about the fact that Holding and Ainsley Maitland-Niles are a little bit more on the outside aren't they and so therefore it's how they react but looking at the rest of the squad and the togetherness you'd hope that they would go right I'll show him well I think the culture is a, a positive culture now it really wasn't and um, to an extent if you're in a positive culture and they're all kind of trying to help each other along um, and motivate each other and challenge each other to get better and be better for the team then you, you know you, you either get inspired by that or you're not going to be around for too much longer. And, you know, there probably will be some natural movement come the end of the season. 
Um, so I think this period is quite important, not just for what Arsenal might potentially achieve between now and May, but also what players are going to be in what kind of jostling for what kind of positions going forward. James, you've been writing about uh, Matteo Guendouzi this week. Yeah, I think he's a really interesting one because, you know, the story's come out, obviously, from Dubai about him and Arteta having a little bit of a spat and him obviously missing a game as a consequence of that. But I, I do think that sometimes these things can be a little bit blown out of proportion. And my feeling about Guendouzi is I think you want to be careful when it comes to taming someone's natural character because I think the thing about Gunduzi that is a bit inflammatory and that causes a bit of controversy is also kind of the thing that makes Gunduzi great I sort of think his primary quality really is his force of personality and I don't necessarily think that that is ever going to be that flexible or change it kind of is who he is to an extent so I'm interested to see you know how the chemistry between he and Arteta plays out because I think Gunduzi's quite unusual in the Arsenal squad in that he had a really good relationship with Unai Emery. And Unai Emery picked him as often as he could and showed enormous faith in him and knew him a bit from his time in France as well. And so Emery going hasn't you know, been the huge relief for Gunduzi that it might have been for certain other players. So I just think it's, it's fascinating to see how his and Arteta's relationship might play out. I think the fascination is, as James says, that that element of his personality is such a strength but he needs that to be allied to positional discipline and technical discipline Mm. so it's whether Ganduzi can rise to the challenge of being himself but also being the player that Arteta wants him to be it's a theme of his career really I mean the manager who his name escapes me now who gave him his debut at Lorient at 17 in Liga was playing him in France and has managed him with the under 21s national team as well says that what it's about really is about channeling what Gunduzi inherently has. And I think Arteta seems in this early period of his career like the guy with the man management skills to do that. And I think if he can, you know, there's potentially a special player there. I like what he did when he came on against Everton, yeah, by the too. way. You know, he, he he was sort of playing as a sort of pressing number 10 um, mm. in the last few minutes yeah. of the game and was harassing and was, you know, played with that personality to make it difficult, ask slightly different questions of the um, of the Everton back line, which gave a little bit of relief, I think, to Arsenal as they were trying to see that game out. And one of the things I really like about Arteta, the way he does things as well, is, you know, there have been a couple of incidents with Ganduzi, with Ceballos, where he sort of said publicly, I'm not happy with what they've done or the attitude they've shown, but he doesn't bear a grudge. You know, it lasts a week or two weeks, then they're back in the team. And I think you have to be like that. You have to show a willingness to forgive or punish someone and then that be it. So players can come back, you know, I think. And he, he's managing that very well. Well, it certainly worked with Ceballos as well. Uh, I'm, listen, we've already shown appreciation for Saka, but that cross yesterday, just, oh, wow. just what a beautiful thing. And the finish, one shouldn't take away. Robin Van Persie was interesting when he was talking about Saka's assist against Olympiakos on uh, Thursday and said it was, it's, was he said a message or something? He said it's an invitation, basically, to finish. Yeah. Exactly where he put the ball. So was the one on Sunday. But Eddie Nketiah was, was in the right position and a beautiful finish. Well, I mean, there's that. There's a fantastic still photo that David Price, one of the Arsenal photographers, took where he's it's like Kung Fu style in midair. And actually, yes. the, his body shape and, and and the way he's actually mid-jump with his you know mm. le, uh, yes. leg outstretched to catch with just the right amount of weight and just the right amount of direction to put that ball in 
was a really fine finish. It was a really. I mean, you had a Q and A. You had a Q and A the other day, yeah. and one of the questions was, "What do you think of Eddie and Ketia?" I mean, he had two outstanding attempts yesterday. One, one of which went in. The other one hit the bar. He's he's stepping forward, isn't he? Yeah, and I think he's been a bit unlucky. You look at he hit the bar with a brilliant effort against Everton. He hit the bar against Newcastle. It was about you know two inches from being a goal. We could be looking at a guy with three goals from two Premier League starts. And I think that the Everton game suited him better. Against Newcastle, they sat in very deep. He had to do a lot of work with his back to goal. Not necessarily his strength, but against Everton, it was a more open game. His movement was better. And I think, you know, that cross from Saka was so brilliant. But I think it distracts from the quality of the finish. The movement is perfect. The way he opens his body, I think any striker would be pleased with that. I also like the way he tried to tussle with Yerry Mina, who yeah. was about double his yeah. size in every dimension. It's all looking very happy at the moment there's three wins in three seven wins days. in uh, seven it's days great, it's great. Uh, let's have a song to finish do we have uh, a song that we're uh, i'd like to suggest uh, the beatles is getting better all the time because it is yeah that's not a bad shout i was thinking of um mustafi so i went uh ll cool j mama said knock you out don't call it a comeback obviously being the crucial lyric <laughs> uh, don't call it a comeback Still on, still on Mustafa, given his uh, his uh, swaggering walk, I was going to go in with the in crowd by Roxy Music. Um, otherwise, with the three wins in in the week, three is the magic number, De La Soul. Three, that's the magic number. We yeah. could have the whole Bob Dylan blonde on blonde album. album for uh, for Mustafa. But anyway, um, we're done. Thank you to Amy, thank you to James, thank you to Lee Dixon, also thank you to Tao back looking after us. Uh, it's been lovely chatting. Uh, this has been the Handbrake Off podcast for The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. See you soon. And for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code ArsenalPod.